1985, and a man by the name of Stephen Slevin was depressed. In fact, he wasn't just depressed, he was acutely depressed, and it wasn't for the first time. He had had a history of acute depression. And so in 2005, he decided to just drive across the country. No destination, no goal, no time frame, nothing to do, just drive across the country in hopes of lifting his spirits. And so as he's driving across the country in the month of August 2005, he finds himself in New Mexico. And on August 24th of 2005, he's driving across New Mexico intoxicated. And he's arrested and incarcerated. And as he sobers up, the New Mexico officials realize that he is mentally unstable. New Mexico has a policy of immediately segregating all the inmates that are mentally unstable. And so they segregated him into solitary confinement according to their policy. However, after putting him in solitary confinement, they left him there for 22 months without a trial, without being convicted of anything, simply charged of drunk driving. So he stayed in solitary confinement for 22 months, during which time his health, his physical health, rapidly declined, as well as did his mental health. He was eventually released when a judge found out about it and dropped the charges, but when he was released, he weighed 133 pounds. He had skin fungus all over him because he didn't bathe regularly. He had bed sores all over him. And his physical health and his mental health had deteriorated greatly. Here's a before and after picture of him. Before and after mug shots of him. After spending 22 months in solitary confinement without being convicted of anything. There's some similarities, obviously, between Stephen Slevin and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul spends two months in a Caesarea, or two years in a Caesarean prison without ever being convicted of anything. Now, there are some differences between Stephen Slevin's story and the Apostle Paul. Stephen Slevin obviously did commit a crime. The Apostle Paul didn't. Stephen Slevin was mentally unstable. The Apostle Paul didn't, or wasn't. Stephen Slevin's story had a happy ending because after being released, he sued the state of New Mexico and was awarded $15 million for his two years in solitary confinement. However, the Apostle Paul's story did not have a happy ending, at least not in earthly terms. Because today in our story, the Apostle Paul will now appeal to Caesar, and he will then be sent to Caesar. He will endure a shipwreck and some more trials on the way, but he'll end up in Rome. He will testify before the Caesar, but then he'll languish in a prison in Rome for more years to come. So we're in Acts chapter 25 this morning. Acts chapter 25. While you're finding that, it's page 984 of the Pew Bible. While you're looking for that, we just um, today we're going to look at the first 12 verses of chapter, tw- of chapter 25. So the message today will be a little bit on the short side because the story that follows this is Paul before Agrippa. And Paul before Agrippa takes a chapter and a half. And I really want to try to put that into one message. And so we don't want to go any further today. So we're going to look at just the first 12 verses of Acts chapter 25. Remember the scenario... Paul has been before Felix, the governor of the, of the province, the Roman province of Syria. And Felix has heard the gospel. Paul has spoken the gospel to him, but not only has he spoken it to him, he has applied it to Felix's immoral life. Paul spoke the gospel and they talked about the immorality that existed in Felix's life. He has this uh, wife, Drusilla, whom he has bought from her previous husband. And they're living without self-control. Paul speaks to them of self-control. 
They're living without righteousness. Paul speaks to them of righteousness. And Paul speaks of the coming judgment. And Felix was convicted. However, he did not respond. He does what Felix always does. He procrastinated and put it off and said, I'll deal with this later. However, the conviction of the Holy Spirit never came to him again in the same way. And so even though Paul spoke of the Gospel more than that to Felix, Felix was never moved to conversion. Well, now Felix has been removed from power because he never was a very good ruler. And he's been replaced by Festus. And that's where we pick up today in chapter 25, verse 1, with Paul before Festus. So beginning here in verse 1, we read this, Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. So right away, we see a difference between Festus and Felix. Festus and Felix are two different people in this regard. Because what did Felix do about everything? He put it off. He procrastinated. He didn't want to deal with it. Festus jumps in with both feet. He's only been on the job three days, and he already goes from Caesarea, the capital, down to Jerusalem in order to see this, this uh, Jerusalem, this important city of Jerusalem, this city that's so important to the province of Syria. So he goes down here to Jerusalem after just three days. And in verse 2, the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul, and they urged him, asking as a favor against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. So here we see, again, Paul is continuing, or I'm sorry, Luke is continuing this important theme that he's had since chapter 23. Remember, he's got this theme of favoritism for man. Men who seek the favor of other men above the favor of God. Paul stands in distinction to these men who seek the favor of other men. Lysias was, was the first one. Then we saw Felix, and then now we see Festus. All of them have this aspect of favoritism, of seeking the favor of other men. Now Paul stands in distinction to that because Paul runs the race of his life for an audience of one, for God and God alone. Meanwhile, all the people in Paul's life are seeking the favor of other people and asking for the favor of other people. We'll see that that will get much more important as the chapter goes on. In fact, Luke is going to use that word favor three times. He used it at the last verse of chapter 24 in desiring to do the Jews a favor. Here again in verse, uh, verse 2, asking as a favor against Paul, and then again in verse 9, wishing to do, do the Jews a favor. So this chapter has a lot to do with favoritism and seeking the favor of men. So they come to Festus and they ask a favor. They seek a favor from Festus that he would send Paul down to Jerusalem to stand trial in Jerusalem. Now, we also learn of this plot that, uh, that they have to ambush him on the way. So Paul, if he is sent to Jerusalem, he's never going to make it there alive. But even if he does, he doesn't stand a chance in Jerusalem. Because remember why, why Paul is in Caesarea to begin with. He's in Caesarea to begin with because of the plot to kill him when he was in Jerusalem before. He wasn't going to get a fair trial in Jerusalem. They were going to ambush him. These terrorists were going to put a knife in his back as he was on his way to court. And Lysias finds out about this and they usher him out of town to save his life. Now they're asking for him to come back to Jerusalem. So there's no way that he's going to get a fair hearing in Jerusalem. But even beyond that, there's no way that he was even going to make it to Jerusalem because we see that this plot exists to ambush him on the way and murder him before he even arrives in Jerusalem. So a couple of things for us to see here. First of all, we notice that this isn't the first time this has happened. Back in chapter 23, remember, they're the terrorists, the, uh, the zealots. They had this ambushing plot once before to what they, they did. They went to the Sanhedrin and they told the Sanhedrin, 
Call for Paul again. Tell the Romans that you want to question Paul some more. And while he's being brought to you, we're going to ambush him on the streets and murder him on the streets. Right? That was the first plot to ambush Paul on the way to a trial. This is the second plot to ambush Paul and murder him on the way to a trial. However, this one is very much different than the first. And in this one, we see the principle of the escalation of evil, the progression of sin, the increase of the kingdom of darkness. Because Scripture teaches us that sin is never content with what it has. Evil is never content with the territory that it owns. It's always seeking to expand its territory, to grow. Jeremiah 9, verse 3 says, evil produces more evil. And so evil is always trying to grow and increase. And that's exactly what we've seen here. Because in chapter 23, it was the zealots, it was the terrorists who wanted to murder Paul. Now, it is the religious leaders of Jerusalem. The moral and the ethical and the religious leaders of the people of God are now the ones who have hatched this plot to ambush Paul on the way. Before, they were just accomplices. Now, it's their idea. So you see the growth of evil, the spread of evil, the increase of evil there. Evil is never satisfied with what it has. It's always seeking more. And now, the religious leaders are on board and it's their idea to ambush Paul before he even gets to Jerusalem. So that's the first thing we see. But the second thing that we see, and I think this is perhaps even more important, is we see the danger of religion without God. The danger of religion without God. These Jewish leaders have a lot of religion, but they don't have God. And as a result, their situation, their spiritual situation and their physical situation is one of great danger. Let me explain. Sometimes we tend to think that if a person doesn't have God, but at least has some religion, then that's better than no religion at all, right? A person who doesn't know God and sits, in the, and sits in the pew every Sunday morning is better than a person who doesn't know God and has nothing to do with church, right? We tend to think that way. However, Scripture shows us that having religion without knowing God is not being closer to God. In fact, it's being further from God. And it's actually quite dangerous to have religion without knowing God. And here's why. When we have religion, but we don't know God, then what we inevitably do is we know how to take God's Word and pervert it and twist it in such a way to justify our own sins. And now being equipped, so we think, with the Word of God that we've perverted in such a way to justify our own sins, now being justified in our sins, we are even more hardened in them. And we're even more emboldened in them. Religion without God, folks, is not being closer to God. It's being further from God. It's being harder and more dangerous and more firmly entrenched in the hardness of our own hearts and the sin in which we love. Because as we inevitably learn to use God's Word to twist it and pervert it to justify our own sins, we then stand in our own emotions anyway, we then stand uncondemned. And in fact, we stand justified. You ever known a sinner who knew how to use God's Word to justify 
what he thought or said or believed, they're almost nearly unreachable, aren't they? It's kind of like an antibiotic. How does an antibiotic work? Have I ever taken antibiotic? The way an antibiotic always works is this. You're feeling real sick, and you finally say, I need to go to the doctor. And you go to the doctor, and the doctor says, I'm going to prescribe an antibiotic. And what does he tell you? What does he tell you? What does a pharmacist tell you? Take it all. Take the whole bottle. And what happens? You go home, you take it for two days, and you feel better. And then you look, and you've got three more weeks of antibiotic, and you say, I'll save it for the next time I get sick. Yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll save it. I'll put it in the refrigerator. The next time I get sick, I've already got it. don't have to go to the doctor. Boom. And then we don't take it all. Now, why does the doctor and the pharmacist insist that you take the whole bottle? Because when you first start taking that antibiotic, it's going to kill most of it right away. Most of the virus right away. But not all of it. And what remains, if you don't take the whole bottle and kill all of it, what remains will then develop an immunity to that antibiotic and even be more dangerous the second time around. Folks, it's the same way with religion. When we take a look at religion and then feel better, but don't know God, and the Spirit of God is not within us, killing the sin within us, then folks, we're dangerous. Because then we're inoculated against the conviction of the Holy Spirit because we have His Word to justify ourselves. Folks that sit in the pew week after week, and don't know God, they are in a dangerous spiritual place because they have all sorts of equipping that they can use, that the enemy can use within them to justify themselves. That's the battle that's going on right now, folks, with homosexuality. You may not be aware of this, but there's a huge, huge contention of people who are Christians who are buying into the fact or to, to the false teaching that Scripture does not condemn homosexuality. Having enough religion, they are able to take God's Word and twist it in such a way in which they say, well, Paul and the New Testament and the Old Testament, they're not condemning the homosexual practice, they're condemning idolatry. And they're using homosexuality as an illustration for it. You see, they know just enough about religion to twist it and then justify themselves. And they then become the hardest people of all to reach because they now justify their own sins. So that's what we see with these religious leaders. They have enough religion to know how to use God's Word to justify themselves. Folks, they're about to murder a man. Wouldn't you think the Ten Commandments would be enough to say, hold on just a minute. There's that little verse in Exodus 20, verse 13, you shall not murder. Maybe you should read that one. Instead, they're probably thinking something like this. Well, yes, we know the Scripture says that you shouldn't murder, but we also know that we are the protectors of God's people. And this man, Paul, he's enough of a danger against God's people that it justifies the means in order to do this thing to get rid of this danger to God's people. That's probably how they're justifying this whole thing. And they're sleeping well at night with consciences that aren't bothering them because they have justified themselves. So that's what we see. We see the danger of religion without knowing God. They were planning an ambush to kill Him on the way. And in verse 4, 
Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So he said, let the men of authority among you go down with me. And if there's anything wrong with the man, then let him bring charges against him. In other words, I'm going to Caesarea right now. This will be the first thing that we do. If you have a case against him, come with me. We'll open it right now. So Festus wants to get right down to business. Verse 6, after he stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And on the next day, he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. He wastes no time. He gets back to Caesarea, and Paul is the first thing that he wants to deal with. So this is the first thing that he wants to deal with. So we see Festus's anxiousness to deal with Paul here, which is interesting to us because we remember that the reign of Felix, the two-year reign of Felix, had the most rebellions and the most uprisings of any period of Roman rule over the Jews except for the very end around 70 A.D. So there must have been a great deal of things that Festus had to deal with. And the fact that he thinks that Paul is important enough to deal with him first of all is very interesting. So he gets back. He doesn't want to waste any time. He calls for Paul. He orders the tribunal. Then verse verse, uh, 7, when the Jews arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around Paul bringing many and serious charges against him. So we get this picture. Luke shows us this picture of Paul literally surrounded by his accusers, which is a very intimidating picture for us to have. I mean, you can, you can think of yourself maybe being on trial, and then literally all around you are people that are your accusers that are accusing you of, of the charges against you. So they bring many and serious charges against him. Now, Luke doesn't tell us what the charges are, and the reason is, 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 is because there's nothing new here. It's the same charges that they brought before Felix, the same charges that they brought before the Sanhedrin. It would have been the charges of, of sacrilege, of, uh, of uh, desecrating the temple, the charge of heresy, of teaching something contrary to God's law, and the charge of treason, of, of leading an uprising, a revolt against Caesar. The same charges, by the way, that they brought against Jesus. So they bring these many and these serious charges against Him that they could not prove. In other words, there's no new evidence. CSI has not been on the case. There's nothing new uncovered in the last two years. It's the same case that they had two years ago that they couldn't prove then. The same one that they had in chapter 23 before the Sanhedrin that they couldn't prove then. No new evidence. They can't prove what they're saying. So verse 8, Paul argued in his defense, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offense. But Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, there we go again, Wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on those charges before me? So Festus asked Paul, do you want to just reconvene this whole thing in Jerusalem? He's not, he's not saying that that's what they'll do. He's asking Paul if he'll agree to that. Now Paul would have been a fool to agree with it for obvious reasons. The, again, the whole reason he's in Caesarea was because they tried to kill him in Jerusalem. And he's not going to trial him. So... It's, it's kind of like asking a hen, do you want to go have dinner in the fox den? You know, he would have been a fool to do this. So he, he wants to do the Jews a favor though, and so he's trying to walk this line uh, by asking Paul, do you want to go down to Jerusalem and have this trial? So Festus here is skirting right on the edge of perverting justice, isn't he? Festus knows that they don't have a case against Paul. Festus either knows that Paul is innocent, or that the charges against him cannot be proven. He has to know that. He has to have read the case reports from two years ago. He surely talked to Felix about this. 
If nothing else, he read the letter that Lysias wrote that described the whole situation, Paul's innocence, and how he didn't start the riot and all these other things. He has to know that Paul is innocent. And yet, instead of exonerating an innocent man, he asks Paul, will you go with Jerusalem to do this? Festus is skirting right on the edge of perverting justice for the sake of doing a favor for the Jews. How much justice has been perverted for the sake of doing a favor for somebody? How much justice today has been perverted for the sake of gaining the favor of a group of people or some powerful people? Because folks, we live in a world of perverted justice. And we see perverted justice all around us. Every time a president leaves office and another one comes in, we see it again, don't we? What always happens the last two weeks of every president's term, both sides of the aisle, doesn't matter. Every president, in the final two or three weeks, you see all these presidential pardons coming through. People who have been convicted of crimes that the president just says, we'll pardon you because I, I want to seek your favor for some reason, or you've sought my favor for some reason. We live in a world of perverted justice. Many of you have told me stories. Instances of perverted justice in your life. I bet Brother Kevin could probably come up here and tell us all kinds of stories of perverted justice that he's seen. And the fact is that we live in a world that is unjust and a world that shows tremendous favoritism. A world in which justice is often perverted for the sake of of gaining favor or giving favor. Now, what, should, what sort of effect should this have on the Christian when we look around us and see a world that is so unjust? Folks, this should have at least two effects on us. The first effect that this should have on a Christian when we see injustice all around us is we should be reminded that we are called to be the world's greatest advocates for justice. There should be no one on this planet that is a greater advocate for justice than Christians. Why? Because we serve the God of justice and because of the greatest act of injustice in the world's history, we are His people. The greatest act of injustice ever was the world's only innocent man being punished for your crimes and my crimes. And through His trading places with me, I can then have His righteousness and be in fellowship with God. That's the greatest injustice in the world. And it's because of that, we should be the greatest advocates of justice because we serve a God who is just. God calls us, and in your sermon notes, God calls us to be people of justice. Micah 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice. Zechariah 7, 9, thus says the Lord of hosts, render true judgments. Our God hates injustice. He hates favoritism and unfairness. How often does God tell you, I hate unfair scales? That's all through the Old Testament, right? You get this picture of people going to the market and buying and selling things. And there's these scales and they say, okay, I'll pay you this much money for one pound of that. And the scales aren't fair. And God says, I hate that. You are not to be a people of that. You are to be a people who love justice and advocate for justice from yourself and for others. Now, here's the rub. None of us have any problem advocating for justice for those whom we like. 
Do we? You have any problem advocating for justice for people that are like you, people that, that, that you share commonalities with? The problem is we have a, a much greater difficulty advocating for justice for our enemies. Those who oppose us. Those who would love to see us suffer. Those who would love to see a world devoid of religion. And yet when they suffer injustice, how quick are we to defend them? Here's a picture that circulated on the internet about three weeks ago. It's a picture of Muslims in Egypt. And you all know what's going on in Egypt. The violence against Christians there. Here's some Muslims in full Muslim dress, arm in arm, hand in hand, defending a Catholic church. I saw that picture, folks, and I was convicted. I was convicted to ask myself, are Muslims more Christian than Christian? Would we do that? Would you do that? If there were a mosque in our community, and that mosque had some windows broken out of it and some graffiti painted on the front, would you be the first one out there saying, this is wrong, this must stop? If they wanted to close the mosque down, would you be one of the ones out there to say, no, they have the right to worship. And I will stand for their right to worship. Are Muslims more Christian than us? You see, that's Jesus' point when He talks to us about loving and praying for our enemies. Is it hard to love and pray for your friends? Is it hard to stand up for their rights? Of course not. When those oppose you, have their justice trampled on. Folks, there is nothing more Christ-like in all of our culture. There's nothing more Christ-like than the Christian who will stand up for injustices committed against his enemy. And so that's the first reaction the Christian should have. When we see injustice around us, we should be the greatest advocates of justice. Secondly, when we see injustice around us, it should cause us to cry out even deeper and more profoundly for true justice to come. Longing for that day, as these three ladies sang earlier, what a day that will be. And what a day that will be because, among other things, that day will bring true justice. And I mean justice with a capital J. True justice will not exist until the God of justice rules this world. And so when we see injustice around us, we don't despair we don't agonize over it. Instead, we look to the day when true justice will come. Until that day, there will not be true justice. This is what Jesus says, or this is what God says in Matthew 12, verse 18. Speaking of Jesus, Behold My servant, whom I have chosen, My beloved, with whom My soul is well pleased. I will put My spirit on Him, and He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. So we see injustice, and it causes us to have those two reactions. So now, Picking back up here in verse 10. Do you want to go to Jerusalem? Verse 10, Paul says, ain't no way. But Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong as you yourself well know. You know this, Festus. You are not an idiot. You are an intelligent man and you can tell that the Jews do not have jurisdiction over me. So you know this very well. Verse 11, 
If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. Did you hear that? If I'm a wrongdoer and have committed something that I need to be punished for, I do not seek to escape that punishment. That's Paul's reaction. Is that yours? Is that your reaction? The reaction of Paul that says, if I've done something wrong, I want the punishment for it. And I don't want the punishment to be alleviated. If I've done something wrong, I want the punishment for it. Is that your reaction? Officer, I know I was speeding. But if I can say something in this moment that will prevent you from giving me a ticket, I'll say it. Or I know I was speeding. But if I can hire a traffic lawyer to get out of this, I'll do it. Paul's reaction is, if I've done something wrong, I do not want to escape the punishment of it. But there is nothing to their charges against me. No one can give me up to them. In other words, they have not made the case that I need to be turned over to the Jerusalem jurisdiction. So therefore, I appeal to Caesar. Now, in the next chapter, in chapter 26, Agrippa is going to say, this man's innocent, and if he hadn't appealed to Caesar, we could have let him go. And oftentimes we say, well, Paul messed up. He shouldn't have appealed to Caesar. But I think Paul sees that Festus is not going to give him justice. And he sees that Festus is seeking a favor from the Jews. And so Paul reasons that it's just a matter of time before Festus gives me over. So he appeals to Caesar. A Roman citizen had the right to appeal to Caesar, and then Caesar would have to hear their case. So then uh, he appeals to Caesar, verse 12, Then Festus, when he had conferred with his council, answered, To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. So, You've appealed to Caesar. You're headed to Rome. Now from this point, Paul's going to stand before Agrippa in the next chapter and a half. And then after that, he's going to get on a ship. The ship's going to be shipwrecked. There's going to be some more trials. He's going to eventually get to Rome. And the prophecy that Jesus spoke back in chapter 23, verse 11, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify in Rome. Come true as Paul stands before Rome, before the Caesar and speaks the Gospel in Rome. But he's going to languish in prison in Rome for a couple of years or longer as well. So now as we finish this short section here, let's ask ourselves this question. What do you think is going through the Apostle Paul's mind? We've tried to, we've tried to get into his mind before. What do, you, what do you think is going through his mind now? Do you think Paul at any point is thinking, God... I know you're sovereign, I know you're wise, but the way you've managed this sure could stand some improvement. Everybody told me not to go to Jerusalem. I went anyway. And everything that's happened since Jerusalem has just been a mess. Do you think Paul is thinking that? Do you think that he's thinking, boy, if I could have managed this situation differently, then this sure could have been done in a more effective way than this. Certainly, I am more useful to the kingdom outside of prison than I am languishing in prison now for two years and more years to come. Certainly, I'm more useful to the kingdom outside of prison than inside of the prison. That's what everybody told him. Everybody in Paul's life, remember, told him, don't go to Jerusalem. Certainly, Paul could have by this point, he may be planting churches in northern Africa, planting churches in, in Europe, instead of languishing in this prison. And so do you think that Paul is anguishing over this and asking God, God, 
What is this? How do I understand this? Is this your plan B? Was your plan A something different and now that frustrated and, and I know you're going to bring good things out of this, but is this your plan B? Or how do I understand this? Is it God's plan that Paul sit in prison? Or is this a thwarting of God's plan that then God says, well, okay, now I'll still use this for good? Or is this just the reality of living in a fallen world? You think Paul's asking himself that question? You think he's asking himself the question of, of how can I be this useless to the kingdom? Because surely I'm more useful outside of this place. Back in the early 70s when I was young, our nation endured probably the greatest political scandal of modern U.S. history. The Watergate scandal. Nixon uh, eventually resigned and some people went to jail. But not many people realize that just a few short years after that, Britain also underwent probably their most scandalous modern day political scandal. And that whole scandal revolved around a man named Jonathan Aiken. Jonathan Aiken was a high ranking member of parliament. He had been in government his whole life, and he had acquired a great deal of power. And he was a very moral person. He'd done a tremendous amount of good in the, through the government of England. However, he had, of course, some enemies who were seeking to bring him down, and so they brought some charges against Jonathan Aiken, some charges of bribery and some charges of perjury, which were untrue. And they had brought him to trial and his reputation was being stained and sullied and drugged through the mud. And so he was on trial for, for these charges of bribery and perjury, which he was innocent from. But during the course of the trial, some information was brought forward about an improper accepting of payment for a motel room stay that Jonathan Aiken once stayed in. And those charges were brought forward and validated with receipts. And he was found guilty. Not of the charges that were brought against him, but he was found guilty of this. And in one of the greatest perversions of justice, he was sent to prison for that. So here his enemies had tried to destroy him with false accusations. Meanwhile, this comparatively insignificant, almost meaningless oversight, he was convicted of this and now he goes to prison. While he's in prison, he's, he receives a visit from a man by the name of Lord Longford. Now, if we were English, we would recognize the name Lord Longford. Lord Longford, during the 1970s, was England's greatest promoter of morality in, in the media. He led a, a huge campaign against pornography in the UK. It was his mission for about 10 years to prevent pornography in the UK, to stamp it out, to prevent it from coming in. And he'd done a tremendous amount of good. He was also a very moral, very upstanding person. At the time, he was about 94. And so he comes to visit Jonathan Aiken in prison. And he said something to Aiken that he would never forget. He said, Mr. Aiken, I envy you. And Aiken said, what are you talking about? You envy me? My career has been destroyed. My reputation has been ruined. And I sit in prison, separated from my family, and you envy me? 
And Longford said, yes. I envy you. Because the man whom God humbles is the man whom He loves and has a plan for. And He's sure humbling you right now, Mr. Aiken. You see, Longford recognized the fact that God was allowing Aiken to be humbled in a way that was unjust. Talk about perversions of justice. In a way that was not just. And yet, Aiken had the spiritual foresight to see that's the working of God. You ask, well, was Paul more, was Paul more useful in prison? Wrong question. Doesn't matter. This was Paul's usefulness. This was Paul's usefulness. You see, Paul is going to be put on a ship. That ship is going to have some trouble getting to Rome, but finally, Paul is finally going to get to Rome and he's going to be put in prison in Rome. And when he's in prison in Rome, he's going to write some letters. And one of the letters that he's going to write is a letter to the Philippians. Just a couple of months in the future. And the letter to the Philippians is the greatest passage in our Bibles on humility. In chapter 1, Paul's going to say, all this stuff that's happened to me, it's all for the Gospel. God's using it all. There's Roman guards that have heard the Gospel. They wouldn't have heard it otherwise. There's Roman officials that have heard the Gospel. Many of them are believing. We even have Christians in the household of Caesar. That wouldn't have happened. Then he gets to chapter 2. And he has that incredible exposition of humility in chapter 2. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though He was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made Himself nothing. Taking the form of a servant, being found in human form, and being born in the likeness of man, He humbled Himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now have that mind among yourselves. And then he gets to chapter 3 and he shows them the humility that God has put into him. Pharisee of Pharisees, Hebrew of Hebrews, I count all as rubbish that I may know Him and share in His sufferings. And then he gets to chapter 4 and he applies it to the Philippians. Now you Philippians, you humble yourselves to one another. You think Paul could have written that letter on humility? if God had not humbled him now? I don't know. I kind of doubt it. I kind of think that this experience that Paul is enduring, this perversion of justice, this incredibly humbling experience, is creating within him what he needs to write the world's greatest letter on humility. Are the sufferings in your life the plan of God? Are the sufferings in your life the work of Satan? Are the sufferings in your life just the side effect of living in a fallen world? You don't know. We don't know. But most importantly, it doesn't matter. Here's what God promises. He promises to everyone who's a child of His, if they will humble themselves in faith 
and suffer like Christ, that He will make them more like His Son. That's the promise that we have. That's the promise that we see fulfilled in the Apostle Paul. As he's being humbled and made like Christ. Is God humbling you now? Are you resisting that? Are you fighting against it? Are you digging in in your pride? Humble yourself before God. He will exalt you. Father.